I've been wanting to try a podcast for ages, and everyone says you should just start. So I'm I'm going to start, and because I like to give people a taste of what's happening in the Berkshires, I was going to try to to share some of the birdsong outside my window, including the baby bluebirds that are um, that squawk like crazy because they're getting quite big now, um, but. It's Friday afternoon, which means there are mowers going and people going past. So instead, I am going to play a little bit of background. Um, tree frog sound. That seems to be two tree frogs talking to one another. And then that, what's called like a banjo string, banjo plucking. That's the green frog that lives in my pond. And we think that... It's a he looking for um, some companionship. Um, it, it's all about about finding a companion or um, and having babies and then feeding those babies. It's been fun to watch. But what I um, actually wrote about in this week's episode was uh, about what Virginia Woolf had to say about Putin. So that's what I'm going to turn to. Um, and this is basically the same that I wrote, I'll, I'll probably ad-lib a little bit, but I, d- I really do want to encourage people to read older books because they're full of wisdom for us. And um, this one was, I just found amazing. I, I started reading A Room of One's Own for the first time um, because, because I'm writing about women in power and I felt guilty because I haven't read um, the early classic feminist literature. I kind of avoided women's studies like the plague when I was younger. And um, to my amazement, not only was Virginia Woolf writing about being a writer, she was specifically, um, this, this, this famous feminist essay is actually, um, it comes from talk a talk she gave at Cambridge to students about women in fiction. Um, She wrote it nearly, uh, or spoke it, and then published it nearly a hundred years ago. But it seems to me that what she had to say um, speaks very much to today. She really (laughs) nails it when it comes to men like Putin. So this is distinctly relevant to issues of our time as well as to the kind of personal issues that it's known to address. Um, but it's definitely not just about having a room to write in and enough money to be, a- to be able to focus on creative work, which is what I always thought it was about, and that seemed dead obvious, even if it was difficult, even today. It's really an essay about power. So it's relevant to Putin's invasion of Ukraine and very much relevant to issues of racism, Black Lives Matter, and other social ills that plague us in the 21st century. It's well worth reading the entire essay, which is, it's a short book. You can find it online or buy a copy, as I did. Um, I started, I got a pencil out and started marking my copy up like crazy, which is not something I do with many books. So here is the, the passage that, um, that struck me probably most forcefully. This is Virginia Woolf speaking. It seemed absurd, I thought, turning over the evening paper, 
that a man with all this power should be angry. Or is anger, I wondered, somehow the familiar, the attendant sprite on power? Rich people, for example, are often angry because they suspect that the poor want to seize their power, seize their wealth, excuse me. Um, the professors, or patriarchs, as it might be more accurate to call them, might be angry for that reason, partly, but partly for one that lies a little less obviously on the surface. Possibly they were not angry at all. In, often, indeed, they were admiring, devoted, exemplary in the relations of private life. Possibly when the professor, that's who she's talking about, a particular professor, um, and Wolf continues, insisted a little too emphatically upon the inferiority of women. He was concerned not with their inferiority, but with his own superiority. That was what he was protecting rather hot-headedly and with too much emphasis, because it was a jewel to him of the rarest price. Life for both sexes, and I looked at them shouldering their way along the pavement, is arduous, difficult, a perpetual struggle. It calls for gigantic courage and strength. More than anything, perhaps, creatures of illusion as we are, it calls for confidence in oneself. Without self-confidence, we are as babes in the cradle. And how can we generate this imponderable quality, which is yet so invaluable, most quickly? By thinking that other people are inferior to oneself. By feeling that one has some innate superiority. It may be wealth or rank, a straight nose, or the portrait of a grandfather by Romney. For there is no end to the pathetic devices of the human imagination over other people. That is, superiority, innate superiority over other people. We've all heard that, haven't we? Here, here she goes again. Hence, the enormous importance to a patriarch who has to conquer, who has to rule, a feeling that great numbers of people, half the human race indeed, are by nature inferior to himself. It must indeed be one of the chief sources of his power. A page or two later in the book came an, an image I, I knew about re women reflecting men at twice their size, something I'm writing about myself, um, and a hilarious image. It makes me think of the funfair mirror that Terry Jones and Allison Telfer had in their front hallway. Um, you could <laughs> reflect people, you could make them tall and you know, up, upper part tall and the lower part short. But anyway, uh, Virginia Woolf quite accurately said that uh, for, for many, it seems the role of women is to reflect men at twice their size. Here's the full passage, though. Women have served all these centuries as a looking glasses, possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of man at twice its natural size. Without that power, probably, the earth would still be swamp and jungle. The glories of all our wars would be unknown. We should still be scratching the outlines of deer on the remains of mutton bones and bartering flints for sheepskins or whatever simple ornament took our unsophisticated taste. Supermen and fingers of destiny would never have existed. The Tsar and the Kaiser would never have worn crowns or lost them. Whatever may be their use in civilized societies, mirrors are essential to all violent and heroic action. That is why Napoleon and Mussolini both insist so emphatically upon the inferiority of women, for if they were not inferior, they would cease to enlarge. 
seems to me one could say exactly the same thing about the way people look at those who are poorer than them, who come from a different class background, or of course have different color skin. Wolf writes about money, of course, in the book, and about motherhood, and about, um, it seems to me, um, about the importance of reproductive rights. Here's a passage that struck me particularly because of the recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Making a fortune and bearing 13 children. Keep in mind, this was published in 1928. Um, making a fortune and bearing 13 children. No human being could stand it. Consider the facts, we said. First, there are nine months before the baby is born. Then the baby is born. Then there are three or four months spent in feeding the baby. After the baby is fed, there are certainly five years spent in playing with the baby. You cannot, it seems, let children run about the streets. People have seen them running wild in Russia, say that the sight is not a pleasant one. People say, too, that human nature takes its shape in the years between one and five. If Mrs. Seton, I said, this is a character she, she uses in the book, had been making money, what sort of memories would you, her daughter, that is, have had of games and quarrels? What would you have known of Scotland and its fine air and cakes and all the rest of it? Finally, a passage I savored as I thought about all the editorial meetings I've been in, in which we have talked about needing more women in our books, about world history and leadership. This is been a challenge for not just recently, but for the 20 years probably that I've been um, uh, developing books and discussing how to cover some big topic, world history, leadership in particular, but even when we worked on the Encyclopedia of China, we wanted to get more women in that. So this, is, this has come up over and over again. Um, so I, I really laughed at, at this passage. If woman had no existence, save in the fiction written by men, one would imagine her a person of the utmost importance, very various, heroic in mien, splendid and sordid, infinitely beautiful and hideous in the extreme, as great a man some, some think, even greater. That, sorry, I've misread that. As great as a man, some think even greater. But this is woman in fiction. In fact, as Professor Trevelyan points out, she was locked up, beaten, and flung about the room. <laughs> That's a quotation from a, a, a history, a world history written by a famous British historian. She goes on, a very queer composite thus being thus emerges. Imaginatively, she is of the highest importance. Practically, she is completely insignificant. She pervades poetry from cover to cover. She is all but absent from history. She dominates the lives of kings and conquerors in fiction. In fact, she was the slave of any boy whose parents forced a ring upon her finger. Some of the most inspired words, some of the most profound thoughts in literature fall from her lips in real life she could hardly read, could hardly spell, and was the property of her husband. And there's a footnote to that passage that I found interesting. It comes from a, an, an, a book about drama. It remains a strange and almost inexplicable fact that in Athena's city, where women were kept in almost oriental suppression, as odalisques or drudges, the stage should yet have produced figures like Clytemestra and Cassandra and and 
Antigone, Phaedra, and Media, and all the other heroines who dominate play after play of the misogynist Euripides. But the paradox of this world, where in real life a respectable woman could hardly show her face alone in the street, and yet on the stage woman equals or surpasses man, has never been satisfactorily explained. In modern tragedy, the same predominance exists. At all events, a very cursory survey of Shakespeare's work, similarly with Webster, though not with Marlowe or Johnson, suffices to realize how this dominance, this initiative of women, persists from Rosalind to Lady Macbeth. So in Racine, six of his tragedies bear their heroines' names. And what male characters of his shall we set against Hermione and Andromach, um, Bernadice and Roxanne, Phaedra and Athalie? So again with Ibsen, what men shall we match with his characters? And I would say that, um, that there are many examples, and I don't know that drama, but certainly in literature, um, there are um, many, um, Trollope is a, 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 uh, an author where it's particularly striking. He has such fine women characters. Um, 